Before we begin this morning, if you'll indulge me for just one moment, I would like to um, acknowledge the fact that our live stream that COVID pretty much forced us into um, is a wonderful technology, um, simply because it allows us to uh, bring into our experience those who can't come. And we know that there are those, if I could speak directly to the live stream, um, that there are those who cannot come because of personal health reasons. And or you choose not to come because of health reasons of family members. And there are still others who we know don't come because of vocational complexities and also complex relationships with adult children and grandchildren. And we understand and we support that. However, if you are staying home merely out of convenience, you know what I mean? Like you wake up in the morning, you're like, I don't have to take a shower. I can wear my pajamas, put my slippers on, grab my cup of joe, sit on the couch, and watch. Let me encourage you to come back. Um, our Christian faith is fundamentally relational. It's communal. And discipleship is intensely relational. So let me encourage you not to give in to the spirit of complacency or convenience and come back. Not only will you experience something more, but we'll experience your presence here in your voice. Enough said, okay? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to just acknowledge that you are good. You're good at all times and in everything you do. We don't always understand it. We don't always feel it. But we're told to believe that you're good in everything and at all times. And so we ask that in this season in which we get to celebrate the birth of your goodness, uh, your son, that you would just allow us the freedom to believe that truth. Lord, I pray that as we open your word together again, that you would just breathe fresh life into us again, intensify our trust and faith in you, allow us to experience joy in this season, regardless of what we've lost or where we're, where we're at emotionally. We just commit this time to you and ask that you would strengthen us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think all of us are mindful, if I could start on a very personal note, uh, mindful of the simple fact that holiday season is emotionally complicated. Um, for whatever reason, it seems that God takes a lot of his people during the holiday season, and even those who are taken or pass on to glory outside of holiday season, just the memories of the past come spilling into the present holiday season, which means uh, it's difficult. Um, for people, and I think all of us can acknowledge that, that and, and some in here or watching on live stream can feel that. Uh, several weeks back, I shared with you something personal, and that is that my only surviving uncle um, had an inoperable brain aneurysm, and um, he lost the ability to uh, move on his legs on his own, so he lost mobility, and so he had to use a walker. And this last week, he lost mobility of his arms, so he can't walk and he can't feed himself. Now, growing up, he's one of the strongest men I knew um, and still know he's, he's not gone yet. Um, he's a contractor by trade and just strong. He, he built houses well up into his late 70s. Um, and now he's in his early 80s and he can't walk and he can't feed himself. Now, I say that to you, again, not to draw attention to my circumstance, not at all. I just wanted to set a context for a conversation that I had with him about a week and a half ago. 
One of the be benefits of technology, right, is that I can have a face-to-face -face conversation through a computer with my, my uncle. Back at that point, he still had use of his hands. And so we live streamed, or didn't live stream, it FaceTimed, and, um, and I got to have a conversation with him. And there he sat on the side of his bed, and a frail man now, once a strong, strapping contractor now as a frail man, with his walker in the forefront of the picture, I could see it kind of hiding part of him. And we had a conversation. And he just said to me, and I'm going to paraphrase this, and this has been a gift to me, and a gift that I will cherish for the years to come. Here I am sitting across the screen from a frail uncle, and he just said, I asked him, I said, how are you doing? Like, I don't want to just know how you're doing physically, that's obvious. How are you doing? Like, your heart, your spirit. And he smiled, and he said, and this is my paraphrase, he said, Danny, he says, God has been so good to me. And his son is sitting next to him, my cousin. And I'll tell you, my, 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 my cousin, he, he's like a prodigal son. He went off the rails as a young man. But came back to Jesus in a huge way. You know, it's like singing in a choir at church. And this isn't just like in the last two weeks. This has been a couple years ago. He just came back to the faith in a huge way. So there's my uncle sharing how good God is and sharing with me that God brought my son back to me and back to him. And he just expressed a praise and a joy, despite the fact that he's staring down the barrel of death. Like, probably he will pass away in the next couple weeks. What a, what, a, what a testament. Joy and praise in the midst of death. Now, I watched a transformation. As a young man, I watched my uncle. He was, he was kind of a gruff and an angry man. That's how I knew him as a young man. Strong, but angry and gruff. Years later, here I watch a frail man, but strong in faith and expressing joy. That is the power of grace transforming a life over a lifetime. Man was strong, but probably proud and angry, and now frail, but strong in faith and able to praise God, though he knows time is short. That is something. I want to say that that is a mark. The ability to praise God, even when you don't feel it, as in you don't feel it emotionally. To praise God in difficult circumstances is a mark of mature faith. It is a mark of mature faith when things are going on in your life and there's loss, and you're able to say, God is good, even in the midst of my grief. That was part of the... the uh, Testament of Job, of course. He lost so much and yet was able to say amidst his grief, and his grief was every bit as real as ours, because he is human, like us. He was able to say, the Lord gave, the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is the mark of a mature faith to praise God in difficult circumstances, when things are good, when things are difficult. One of the things that emerges in this hymn that Mary writes, or she speaks, which is what we're studying for Advent, Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through the end, um, is a psalm of praise. Now, granted, she's not in a difficult place in this section of text. She's in a high, a euphoric high. But in this hymn, in this psalm that she speaks, we discover what it means to praise God 
and why? Where does it come from in any circumstance? Those, those two things. So I want to look at it with you, beginning with the simple fact that she magnifies the Lord. This is what she says. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Like, to magnify means to enlarge or to make big. Now, we don't have to make God big. He already is infinitely big. But what we do is we make God big through our speech to let the world know that he's big and to remind ourselves that he's bigger than we can ever imagine. That's to magnify. And then she says, my soul, my spirit rejoices. You notice the, the joy and magnification go together? Like you naturally magnify what you enjoy. Don't, that's a simple uh, human fact. I've had people over the years come up to me and say, we have another grandbaby. I had someone come up today and say, hey, we have another grandbaby on the way. And sometimes they pull out their phone and say, you want to see her? It's like, sure. <laughs> they flip through the pictures and they get to the one and then they blow it up, you know, zoom in. Isn't she cute? They're like, wow, she is cute. It's, it's, it's visible display of joy now magnifying the wonder of a birth of a child or the coming of a child. We just naturally do that. We enlarge what we enjoy. I have way too many barbecue um, implements at my house for one reason. That is because I work with somebody who shall remain nameless but whose name rhymes with madam. He comes in one day and goes, hey, do you know what a pit barrel is? I'm like, not really. He showed me a pit barrel. It basically looks like just a steel drum with a couple pieces of rebar and a little vent on the side. He goes, this cooks the best ribs ever. And then he cooked ribs. And I'm like, wow, you're right. What you enjoy, you magnify. If you don't want to spend money on barbecue equipment, don't talk to Adam. That's the point, right? Mary enjoys the Lord, not created things at this point. That's not who she's magnifying. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. That is, it's, 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 it's God himself that she enjoys. And when you enjoy the Lord in life, in everything, you enjoy him in creation, you enjoy him in relationship, you enjoy him in church, well, then... You want to make much of him. You want to magnify him. You want to enlarge how great he is. That's simple truth. It's a human fact. But notice that she is not worshiping or praising God out of pretense. She's not pretending. Nor is she just going through the routine of some kind of written liturgy. And liturgy is not bad. Nevertheless, what she's saying is it's from my soul. From my spirit. So here you have this, this woman, young, who's received this wonderful gift, and now she's just magnifying and praising God from the heart for what he's done. That's, that's, that's a mark of how we should be. Like the world wants to magnify all the wrong things. You watch the news and everything's magnified, right? We have heard a lot of bad news this last week. But where are Christians to say, I want to magnify the goodness of God amidst the darkness? That's part of what we should be doing at Christmas. Not magnifying the bad, but magnifying God. 
That's the first part. That's, 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 that's her, her praise. And this is a fruit. It comes from somewhere else. It's just this joyful magnification of God. That's a mark of Christian faith. Make God big. But where does it come from? We can't just like spontaneously explode in praise without something to praise as a cause. There has to be, there has to be a cause. There has to be a fire somewhere to cause it. And this is where we're brought to what she says after this in verses 48 and 49. You'll notice that she addresses the source of her magnifying God and her, her praise of God and her enjoyment of God um, with three little four clauses. Four, she says, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Stop. He has looked at the humble estate of his servant. God has looked. I love that. In my lifetime, I have been in the presence of only two Hollywood stars. Only two. One time in Chicago, I was going down an escalator um, in O'Hare International Airport, and I looked over, and there is Shelley Long going down with me. You know, Shelley Long from Cheers. I know that's a show a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. You know, Ted Danson's counterpart, and she, I'm like, I'm trying not to stare, and there's no bodyguard, she's just there, and I, somebody going up the escalator says, I love your show, Shelly, and I'm like, that is Shelly Long. <laughs> That's number one, and the second one, back in the 80s, is I was on the streets of San Francisco, I was stationed at Treasure Island for like a hot minute, and there, there's all these crowds bumping around, here somebody say, hey, Bill, and it turned him right next to me. Bill Crosby. Bill Cosby? Cosby. Cosby. This is before he fell, you know, from grace. And, and just he's right there. Like, that, that's Bill Cosby. That's, back then, he was a huge star. So those are the only two people I've encountered who are Hollywood stars. Only two. Shelley Long and Bill Cosby. You know what? Not one looked at me. They didn't notice me at all. They say, hey, dude. They did nothing. Why? Because I am a nobody. I am a nobody. Why would they look at me? But here, in this young woman's hymn, she recognized the God of all creation, who knows every planet's name, who counts them by number, brings them out, and not one is missing because of his power. He looked at me. God looked at me. He looked upon the humble estate of his servant. That's remarkable. I mean, again, I said this before last week, is like Mary essentially was a nobody. Of all the thousands of young Jewish women, she got chosen. I mean, from a squalid, dusty town like Nazareth, and it's a squalid, dusty town. God chose her, and she recognized God chose me. Not because she was great, but because she exercised a simple faith and was humble, and he chose her. That is, in one sense, we look at Mary's life, and, and we have to acknowledge that she, was, she played a unique role in, in human history, that nobody else gets to play. Nobody else gets to be the mother of Jesus. Nobody else gets to be the mother of God. She did. So it's a unique place, a unique role that she played in human history. No one else gets to play that role. 
But at the same time, we can also claim the fact that God looks at us too. He knows us by name. We're told in the opening chapter of Ephesians, and Paul says that we, speaking of ordinary people of faith, he says that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he, that is the Father, chose us before the foundation of the world. He saw you before the thousands of years started to roll along. He knew your name. He chose you. That means he looked at you. King David was overwhelmed, and he considered himself someone who was poor and needy. He was the youngest of all of his brothers, and nobody ever expected him to be king. And yet he could write in, in Psalm 8, he could say, What is man that you consider him? Or the son of man that you would care for him? Like, well, you're, you put the sun and the moon and stars in place, and yet you know me. And that should blow you away, that God knows you. He looked at you. He cares about you. He chose you. So while Mary plays a distinctive spot, it, there's the same thing. There, there is this, this, this gracious look that God has for his people that should allow us to praise him and acknowledge his goodness in all circumstances. Things might be going horribly well, but guess what? He sees me. Well, Cosby may not have seen me, and Shelley Long doesn't, don't, didn't see me, but you know what? They're just people. And if we hunger to be seen by men, then at the end of the day, we worship vanity and futility. But to be seen by God and cared about by God, that is something worth praising God for. So that's the first one, is this, this gracious look. But there's another clause here, and that is he says, she says, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. All generations will call me blessed. Not because she's a somebody. She was a nobody. But because of God's grace, she became a somebody. And acknowledge that because of what God has done, it's not because she was, you know, better than everybody else. That's, that goes completely against the whole flow of this, this, this psalm. No. I was a nobody, and God made me a somebody. And now, guess what? All generations are going to remember my name. That would have blown her away, too. This is, a, this is a way of talking about exaltation. God took a nobody and exalted her to a place of somebody. We all remember. We celebrate at Christmas. We read her story every year, sometimes multiple times a year. He exalted this humble woman to a place of prominence. Now, she played a unique role in history. And yet at the same time, are we going to be remembered? I think there's something innate to the human heart. We want to be remembered. We want to know that our life wasn't for, for nothing. We want to know somehow it had an impact. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Most of us in this room, if not all of us, five generations from now, will not be remembered. You might be a name in somebody, front of somebody's Bible. But people aren't going to tell personal stories about you because those personal stories are going to be lost. But here's the thing. I believe that God has given each and every one of us eternal work to do. That is, we're told that our labor, the labors that come out of our faith, are not in vain. They're not futile. That as we serve in our own unique ways, and by the way, God has... 
given us tasks to do that he set in advance for us to do that we will do, which means our lives at the end of the day will matter. And we know that our names, the names of his people, are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, which means he remembers our name forever. And I believe the work that we do of faith and service to God will be part of the formation of the great and grand city of God in which we will see. And God himself will adorn his bride, and you will be exalted on that day. Paul said, the sufferings of this life can't be compared to the glories that lie ahead. Part of that glory is the glory God shares with us in the exaltation of his people. So while she plays a unique role in history, I want you to know that God's grace is going to work in your life through what you do in service to Christ, and it's going to show up in eternity. That's a reason to give thanks and to praise the Lord because God provides us opportunities for service all the time. And most of what you see in your life, or should I say, most of the wonderful things that God will accomplish through your life, you'll never see this side of heaven, but it'll show up. Third, the third little four statement says, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. That is to say, she acknowledged that this is all a work of God. God has done wonderful things for me. Again, unique. The only one who gets to be the mother of Jesus is Mary. And yet, if you think about it for a second, the birth of Jesus, or should I back up and say the conception of Jesus? Because at this point, we're just dealing with right after the conception. The conception of Jesus was, in fact, a miracle, and it's a wonderful thing. Without it, we wouldn't have Jesus the man. But the greatest work of God was not in his conception, is it? Only two of the Gospels tell us about the birth of Jesus, Matthew and Luke. But all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, spend enormous amounts of time talking about what he did, how he suffered, and how he died. That is the climactic work of God through this child that she gave birth to. And she firsthand had to watch as her firstborn son, skin was ripped, tormented, tortured, and crucified a horrible death. Now I say that because Luke chapter 1, there's a euphoric high. She's praising God as she should, which we're studying. By the time you get to the end of the Luke She's going to be at a horrifying low as she watches her own son perish. And I point that out because, you know, sometimes it's easy to think that the Christian life is, should be a series of euphoric highs. And the fact of the matter is the journey of life for every Christian is filled with highs and some really deep lows. It's for all of us, Mary included. And she would struggle as you well may imagine. But here's the point. She got to witness him rise from the dead. In all of our low points, in all of our loss, in all of our pain and agony from whatever it is, the simple fact of the matter is the end of our story is resurrection life. That's the victory that allows us to 
praise God, magnify God, what he did on the cross and through the resurrection to bring us to him, the end of the story, in a wonderful climactic way so we can say, I can still praise you even in death because I know there's a resurrection coming. That is this gracious working of God. So here you have this praise, this magnification of God from the heart because of God's grace in these manifold different ways. But I want to end with one final observation, and that is the disposition of the heart that the Lord is pleased to place his favor on. The disposition of the heart that the Lord is pleased to show favor to. One of the things that marks off Mary's character that makes her extraordinary is her simple humility. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. That's she's defining herself. Like, I am a nobody. She even talks about or refers to herself in the third person. She didn't say, you know, the humble state of me, his servant, third person, as if lower than low. Like, she understands who she is in God's kingdom. She understands who she is in God's world. Who all of us is in God's kingdom, who all of us are in God's world. And this is the disposition of heart that the Lord is pleased to show favor to, not just in her case, but everybody's case. One of the defining marks of Jesus' life, which is why we chose Zechariah to read from, is he came into the capital city riding a donkey in humility. The Lord is pleased to show favor upon his son who is truly humble and yet had every reason to not be the God-man Jesus Christ. We're told that, and this is a theme throughout Scripture, that God opposes the proud and he exalts or lifts up the humble. The first lesson Jesus taught his kingdoms about life in the kingdom, his disciples, as, as it relates to life in the kingdom, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. That is, blessed are those who understand their place before God. Blessed are the humble, for theirs is the kingdom of God. There's no place for arrogance and pride in the kingdom. It's really easy to allow our fallen fleshly hearts. Now, God has given us a new heart, but the flesh still resides. To allow those, those desires for adulation and praise and appreciation for position, for wealth and power to spring up. And that's where the division comes from. That's where the lack of peace comes from, when pride grows. But where there is a heart of genuine humility, there is the possibility, the very real possibility of actually loving somebody. Without humility, it is impossible to love another person sacrificially because you're so concerned about yourself. As a husband, it is impossible for you to love your wife sacrificially if you are not humble, or your kids, or your neighbors. It's almost impossible to experience joy in times of desperation because you're spending most of your time trying to control everything. And so joy evaporates because there's no humility or patience. Like these are all the wonderful, virtuous fruits of grace and the Spirit in our life. What about patience? where there is a lack of humility 
regard for other people. You will always be on your time, tame, time frame trying to accomplish your tasks with your agenda. The humble heart is a beautiful heart, is a free heart, is a joyful heart, is a loving heart. The kind of heart that's able to praise God in every circumstance. So my challenge to all of us this Christmas, who are you going to magnify? Who are you going to magnify? What are you going to magnify? I think it's a beautiful thing when everybody else is being so negative, you're able to say, my Lord is good. And let me tell you why. Not just because of the created blessings of food and water and friendship. Those are all good too. But because the Lord looks at you. He knows your name. Someday he will exalt you at the resurrection. And he is going to bring us home. Magnify the Lord. Stay humble. And praise him from your heart. Amen. Lord, we acknowledge that this is a supernatural work that you do in our hearts, and I pray especially for those who find themselves looking down the barrel of death or loss. I just ask that you would give them special grace this Christmas season and beyond to give thanks and to praise you even amidst the difficult times. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Most of all, thank you for your son in Jesus' name. Amen.